Um, thank you. I don't know Mr. Corey is that maybe my father, but anyhow. Hi, I'm Ariel, so it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have a very soft spot, a lot of gratitude for Chappelle's, and I'll tell you why before we start. I've actually never been here before, but the best thing that happened to me in my life is my wife. And my wife became from largely because of Chappelle's. So my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, was dating a non-Jew for six years. And they decided they wanted to get married. And my in-laws, this happened years and years before I got married, um, told my sister-in-law that he has to convert. So my brother-in-law started a reform conversion, and he didn't like it at all. And he decided he's going to go through Orthodox conversion. This was out of his own volition. My in-laws didn't care what type of um, conversion he was going to do. And whilst he was converting, he decided to come to Chappelle. And he became from. And that's how my sister-in-law became from, and that's how my wife was exposed to Yiddishkeit. And my wife is very much a big to me, though, another schoolmaker's wife. So thank you to the schoolmakers in general. So that's why I have a lot of advice to talk to Chappelle. It's very nice to be here. I don't know how, how much you're aware of how grateful you should be for having such facilities. Most Baal Shivas don't have these type of facilities. So if you have any complaints, keep them to yourself. <laughs> uh, so my name is Ariel, and thank you for that kind introduction. Um, my parents are actually Israeli. Um, we migrated to Singapore in the late 1960s. Um, and please interrupt me whenever you want, but don't ask any questions. Uh, I went to a British international school. The school is actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this year. It was a very special school. Um, I proceeded to go to Oxford after, I did a BAMA, and kind of my lifelong ambition was to become an academic. Ten days before I graduated and I was going to start my PhD, I received a phone call from Lehman Brothers. I don't know how many of you know what Lehman Brothers is, but Lehman Brothers used to be a very large investment bank that collapsed during the financial crisis. This was 12 years preceding to that. Back then it was a very large investment bank. And I thought they were calling me because I speak Mandarin. Because I assumed that investment banks need Mandarin speakers. But they were actually calling me because I speak Hebrew. Because there was so much business. This is after Oslo, you know, the Oslo years, and there was so much business coming out of Israel, and we didn't have any Hebrew speakers. Um, so they offered me a job. And I said to them, I, I was like, I'm very confident. I was 21 years old. I didn't know what a profit and loss statement was. I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I was a philosophy and history major. <laughs> and they offered me to join um, you know, the M&A, the Mergers and Acquisitions Division. Um, so I decided, you know, when I saw the dollar sign, I, was, I guess I was motivated by need. I couldn't believe that they were paying 21-year-old these kind of salaries. I didn't know what I was in for. And I decided to defer my PhD by year. I was the only analyst in that entire class that had no idea what finance is. Um, and I joined m and Little did I know that I was going to start working 90-hour weeks. Um, and this went on for three years. Well, um, I started losing my hair already back then. Um, it was a dreadful experience, but it was the best school that I've ever had in my life. I mean, in terms of skills, if anybody wants to go into finance, it was a phenomenal school. Um, I did that for three years. And I'm going to go back a little bit in my story as to why I started making chuba because it was around that same time. So when I was growing up, I had a, a Canadian-French female friend um, whose mother was a non-Jew, whose mother was a very famous architect, probably one of the world's most renowned architects. Um, her mother was a real society lady, 
And when we were about 15, 16 years old, my mother decided to become a devout Buddhist. Um, and from having all these society parties, all of a sudden I used to go to the house and see all these monks kind of swarming through the house. And it was my first encounter with spirituality. Uh, and I was blown away by it. I thought it was something very beautiful. You know, all the, ro- you know, the robes and the beads, and then I spoke to those who could actually speak English. Um, and I'm fasting forward, when I went to Oxford, my friend then went to the London School of Economics. And when she graduated, she was asked by a very famous Hollywood actor, you know, it's funny, because when we used to tell this story, everybody knew what I was talking about. But because these are now younger people, that have no idea what I'm talking about. So, Richard Gere used to be a Hollywood megastar. Uh, Richard Gere asked my friend to become the president of the Richard Gere Foundation for Tibet, because he himself is a devout Buddhist. So, my friend decided to accept the position, and she moved to northern India, to Dhamsala. That's where the Tibetan community in exile resides. Um, and my friend asked me if I wanted to come and visit her. So six months into my stint um, in investment banking, I decided I'm going to take a few days off, and I flew to India, and I made the trek to northern India. This is the foothills of the Himalayas. It's a beautiful place. And what I did know is that she was inviting me to public teachings of the Dalai Lama. Now, I just want to explain what that means. You know, there were 75,000 people ranging from, like, the poorest Bhutanese villager all the way to Goldie Hawn and Richard Gere. Um, and he gave four consecutive days of lectures. Um, it was lectures on materialism and on love and on attachment. Um, and it was the first time I sat um, and thought about all those stuff. And I grew up in Singapore. Singapore has made an incredible accomplishment in creating a new religion, which is called the religion of money. Um, and they converted us all. And, and it was, uh, no, no, they're very successful. Singapore became an empire from absolutely nothing. A tiny little country, no natural resources, very few people. Turned into economic powerhouse. Um, so I'm sitting there, kind of in the Himalayas, listening to all these lectures, one after the other. And it was very funny, right? Because, you know, there were nine translators translating all these different languages. And depending on how quickly the translator would translate a joke, you would hear pockets of laughter among the audience. But I was blown away. And I remember when I, I returned to London, I returned to investment banking, people said to me, wow, you're glowing. And I guess I was glowing, but that glow disappeared very quickly, you know, going back to my Excel spreadsheets. Um, but I guess I needed kind of that spiritual injection. So I decided that I'm going to do that whatever I could, and it happened that every six months or so I used to go back to Dharamsala, whenever the Dalai Lama had published teachings, and uh, I used to listen to him. Um, and it was mesmerizing. Really mesmerizing, because also the human being himself was a fascinating. You can really see that he was a worthwhile person. Two and a half years later, my friend asked me finally uh, whether I wanted to meet the dialogue. And I said to her, of course, you know, I'm actually I'm not a shy person, but something kept me away from asking her. So when she said that, of course I was really dialogue. So, you know, I walk into his house, and this is the Himalayas, it was one of the most beautiful places in there. He tells me to sit down, so I sit down, and he says to me, I understand that he's Israeli, and I say, well, by nationality, I'm Israeli, and he said to me, you're Jewish, and I said, yes, I'm Jewish, and he said, you know, you don't need to come here, you come from the most ancient wisdom, I suggest you go back to wherever you come from, and you learn where you come from more, and if you still feel the need to come back, you afterwards come back, but don't come back before that. Now, I just want to explain to you what happened and then he ended the conversation. You know, he gave me one of those beautiful silk scarves, and you know, I, I was basically ushered out. 
So the whole thing lasted, you know, two and a half minutes. So I'm standing outside his house, and I'm so disappointed. I was like, I, I don't understand. I traveled eight and a half thousand kilometers to hear that I have to learn Torah. Now, now I was very, very Jewish in identity, right? What does that mean? You know, I laid to fill in every day since my bar mitzvah. You know, we fasted on the keyboard. We made Kiddush on Lel Shabbos and then went to eat lobster spaghetti outside. Um, but I knew nothing about Yiddish. You know, I didn't know that we had two temples. And I didn't know that Noach preceded Abraham. I knew nothing. And I remember I was standing there and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is my narcissistic self playing out. And I was like, why? Wow, he must have seen something very special about me. <laughs> I don't know, you know, to say that. Uh, a while later, I found out that he says that to every Jew that walks through his door. Literally every, and this is a free cure. So I always say to all the cure organizations, just shut down and send them to the Ansar. It's much more powerful. You don't need to do any trips to South Africa, you know, skiing sushi trips. Literally just go to the Ansar. It's cheaper and it's more effective. No, no, the yeshiva should all stay. I'm talking about the cure organizations. Um, and I went back to London. Um, and then something fascinating happened. My sister calls me up one day, and she tells me that her best friend from college, my sister was in law school at the time, decided she wanted to convert. And she asked me if I could help. So I said to her, I, how could I help? You know, what do I know about conversions? And uh, So she goes, I really need to help. I have no time. I have exams now. And if she wants to convert, we have to help her. So I did some research, and uh, I came across Robert Tats. So I didn't know who he was, but I called him up and I said, well, can I bring this girl to meet you? So he said, sure. So I was living in central London by Hyde Park. It's a beautiful place. Never been to Golden Spring in my life, which is where the firm community resides. So I leave kind of my comfort zone and start venturing up. And I remember I'm sitting in the car, and we're like traveling north and north, and it's kind of up the hill. And I'm like, where am I going? Do I need my passport? And, you know, and, and, and aesthetically, it just becomes uglier and uglier. <laughs> and, and then we arrive in Golders Green, and, and I meet Robert Tatz. I don't know how many of you know who he is. Do you all know Robert Akiva Tatz? Also about Shuba, South Africa, and a you know, phenomenal human being. Um, and that was it. I mean, for me. You know, she ended up converting elsewhere, and I, just, I, I stayed by Robert Tatz. And it was a very slow trip process. You know, I initially started spending time with Robert Tatz, and then I started learning with Robert Tatz, and, um, and then I met Robert Tatz's rabbi. Robert Tatz's rabbi was a rabbi the name of Moshe Shapiro. Uh, it was if just seven years ago, seven and a half years ago. Um, really an extraordinary being. Robert Tatz sent me to meet him. Um, you all know about Moshe Shapiro? Yes, okay. so my encounter with the Moshe Shapiro was as follows. So I walk into his house, you know, it was about 1.30 in the afternoon, and I walk in and he, and he asked me, what are you reading? So I thought he meant, what are you learning? So I said to him, I'm trying to learn Gitin, I don't understand the word, and frankly, I don't really, I was very opinionated, I'm still very opinionated. I said to him, I don't know why Balachuda should have put you in front of the Gemara, you know, it has nothing to do with your life, and you don't understand the word of what it says. Um, and he smiled and said, I didn't ask you what you're learning, I asked you what you're reading. So I said, you mean it's in the book? And, and he said, yes. So I said, I'm reading the psychology book. And he said to me, which one? And I said to him, I'm reading a book called The Art of Loving. Very famous book of psychology, and from, and then he came across it. And then he said, where are you holding in the book? So, that was I had a long idea, you know, a formidable person, but very much rough looking. 
Sadri, uh, well, I'm holding. And he looked at me and he said, you're misquoting. So I said, what do you mean? And then he repeated what I said. And then he told me what Erkbom said in the book. He told me why I misquoted him and I misunderstood what Erkbom was saying. And then he told me a little bit about Erkbom's life. <laughs> and I was like, okay, who is this person? <laughs> um, it ended up that by some crazy, you know, going to uh it ended up that my wife, his wife, it was my, my second cousin. And I became a Ben Weiss later on. Um, and I started spending every third Shabbos over Moshe. I have many stories on him, but we'll keep that uh, for, for another time. Um, so I was say Moshe never made me from, but he kept me from. Um, now fast forward a little bit. After Lehman, I started working for a family office of uh, the family that owns IKEA. It's a Swedish family. The joke was that I'm kind of a token Jew. Um, I was already from at the time. It's a very kind of European family office, a very large family office. And then I opened a fund, um, which I ran for 13 years. Um, I made my wife in the way, also a big Saturday Shmaya story. Um, and something very interesting happened on the way. You know, what, one of the things we invested in is we acquired a company. Are there any Californians here? Okay, so we acquired a company called the Coffee Bean Interior. Um, so this was in 2003, it was a small chain, you only had 34 outlets at the time. Um, but the way you buy a company, right, you have to do due diligence of the company. So you have to do legal due diligence, you have to do public due diligence, you have to do financial due diligence. But one of the things that you do is you have to do a competitor's analysis. And the only real competitor in that market was Starbucks. You know, Starbucks started this market with cafes, you know, cheap cafes with cheap coffee. But an incredible story about how you can educate a market that a terrible product is actually a premium product. And then you kind of have that last for decades and decades. Um, and I, I tried to get hold of Harold Schultz, who was the founder and CEO of Starbucks, and we left him many voicemails and, and emails, and he wouldn't return my call. So this is circus of 2003, and I'm spending it in New York. And I go to my friend's house for circus, you know, on the Upper East Side, and, and he sits me on the, on the table, and I turn to the person next to me, and I'm like, hi, I'm Ariel, you know, good to meet you, what's your name? He goes, my name is Howard, and I'm like, oh, Howard, no, this is me, Howard Schultz. <laughs> so I ended up that he was also there for a circus student. So I said, well, I don't understand, this has to be cosmic, because we're about to close the coffee deal, the only thing that's really keeping me from closing it is that I don't know what Starbucks' intentions are, and I'm not going to close the deal unless I know what they're going to give us some room to grin. Um, and he looks at me and he goes, I have a question to ask you. And he takes out of his pocket this photo of this rabbi. I kid you not, but he's a secular person, you know, completely visibly secular. And I'm like, no, man, I don't know who this rabbi is. I happen to have met that rabbi in a few years down the road and become very close to him. At that time, I didn't know who that rabbi was. The rabbi was of nothing to be thinking of. Okay, it was the, the Rosh Hashiva of Vimir. You all know who he is? Okay. And then he goes, I want to tell you a story that changed my life. And then Howard Schultz tells me the following story. So now I'm telling you a story within a story. So Howard Schultz comes to Israel with a group of 25 of the leading seniors in the U.S. And they take them everywhere. Okay, and, and they see Israel from a very secular perspective. And then the head of, uh, of APAC asks whether they could also have a religious experience. So I don't know how this came about, but the religious experience was to take these 25 top CEOs to meet with Nazi speaking. Now, 
I don't know how many of you know this, but he, li- he lived in uh, Shaheen in the department department, and literally there was a you know, water leaking from the roof, and they took all of them to this department. Now at that point, he already had advanced Parkinson, and he wasn't taking any medication for it because he wanted to continue to be sure and uninterrupted. And he tells all, all these CEOs to sit. And he's a mega, mega CEO, yes, he's like Howard Schultz and his likes. And he looks at them and he asks them, gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. What is the story that we should all be learning from the Holocaust? Now she's telling me that, you know, that probably 25 of the most opinionated people in the world, but they're all scared to ask that because they don't really understand what happened, but nobody can say anything. And he was pressing me for an answer. So one of them said, well, we should make sure it never happens to us again. And the other one says, you know, we should, obviously we should build an army, we should build a state. And how she then, you know, says that, you could see that I was very dissatisfied with all the answers, and he dismisses them all. He says, you're missing the point. And, you know, really the lesson that we should be learning from the Holocaust is the triumph of the human spirit. And he tells them, and this is something I wasn't aware of, the Nazis in Archimam used to try to time all the transporters used to go from West and Central Europe to Eastern Europe to the camps, so that they arrive in the middle of the night. Now you have to remember that Eastern Europe, in the middle of the night, for months of the year, is freezing icy cold. And they used to give one blanket to every six people. One in every six people used to receive a blanket. By the way, it could be that that's what ties into the Gemara of Shushanit Kassim Betaris but never mind that. So that person, the Master Sweet Rinkholm, told the CEO, had to then make a decision. Was he going to use that blanket for himself, or was he going to use it for five other people? And since the vast majority of people who received those blankets decided to share it with five other people. And the Master Sweet Rinkholm looked at him and says, go back to America, take your blanket, and stretch it as wide as you can, and cover as many people as you can with your blanket. And that's how I ended the story. So I turned to him and I thought, okay, so what did you do with your blanket? It's a pretty wide blanket. And listen to what he asked. He said, I started a program within Starbucks that for every employee that is with us for a minimum of three years, he is eligible to go and study undergraduate level studies funded by Starbucks. Incredible program. We're talking about tens and tens of thousands of employees. And to this day, Starbucks does it. Father Hauschutz became a supporter of the Mir Yeshiva, and from what I understand, he's a supporter of the Mir Yeshiva to this day. Just in this one single encounter that he had with a very wealthy... I mean, you have to be a very sensitive person to see that you're sitting in front of the greatness. It doesn't happen to all people. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because a few years later, you know, I never planned to go into the business world. And I would say it was a successful mistake, but I never planned to do it. Um, you know, when Elia Jacques coined the term a midlife crisis, he also coined the term a second life. So my wife calls this a midlife crisis, and I call it a second life. And I always say to her, it's better than a second life than a Porsche, and she definitely agrees about the former. Um, so we moved to New York, and um, I did a PhD at Columbia in, in clinical psychology. I did a postdoc at Yale in neuroscience. I specialize in addiction, and we decided we wanted to raise our kids here. Uh, we made Elia seven years ago. And I decided that I'm going to dedicate my life to the public. And I opened a charity that basically promotes the treatment and prevention of addiction. Um, it's the country's only charity that does this. Um, and that's what I do too. Now, I wanted to give a synopsis of what I do so we can open this up to questions, as opposed to me just talking about myself.
I do not tell that the whole exercise of sitting and, and talking about myself is a little foreign to me. I don't. You know, Great. Uh, um, but please, any questions you want to ask? We live in Yerushalayim. Any of you are invited to come to us for Shabbos? You know, whenever you want. We live in the Matishkol for those who know. Um, and I hope you're going to use your Shiva time in an effective way because it's priceless time. Now, I went to Machon Shlomo. I didn't know the Shukar existed at the time. Um, so please. Yes. I was just curious how you ended up starting with the hedge funds and opening up or becoming involved with this center for addictions. Um, so I'll tell you what, what happened. Um, I come from a business family, uh, but we were never ever channeled to go that way. You know, each my whole family bought for Shemay Chuba. Really, by it wasn't because of me. I just want to tell you, Moshe always made that clear that it's not because of me. You know, he says that I come from a, a very illustrious lineage, which must have made a lot of noise in Shemai. So he says it must have been very noise that moved my whole family, not me. Um, you know, I never saw myself as a business person. But what I did notice once I entered the business world is that your wealth targets are constantly revised. And at some point I realized that's not a healthy exercise. You know, it's sort of a time that you can never fulfill. Um, and I, you know, I married also a person that the Gashmus is not really, uh, I would call it, currency in her life at all. And, uh, and I thought we should do something good with it. So I'm still involved. I mean, I have an investment office, you know, that run our investments. Um, I just dedicate 95% of my time to the public. But it's not like I'm not involved in business at all. It just happens to be a very little part of my time. Sure. Sure. So, it really it was born out of an idea. I, I actually thought, well, I didn't know what I was going to do in the field of addiction in Israel, but when, when we moved here, I realized that there was a systemic failure, literally across the border. Israel has an incredible healthcare system. You may not realize it, but I presume most of you are American. So, Israelis pay close to nothing and receive free healthcare, uh, which is remarkable. Now, you may complain about Kupat Kholim, and about the fact that you can't use the apps of Kupat Kholim, but for the average Israeli, you give you access to top doctors really for free. And that includes mental health. The problem is that addiction was carved out of the mental health, the mental health, the, sorry, the mental health system in general. So there was no recourse to treatment whatsoever. So the average Israeli, if he suffers from, any, from diabetes, or from depression, or from anxiety, can get treatment, and very good treatment. But if you suffer from addiction, you couldn't get any treatment. So really, it was born out of an, an idea that there is a whole systemic failure that has to be fixed, almost a social injustice. And uh, I, I never saw myself as what we call a social entrepreneur at all. Um, the mission is says, when we come share the mission, it should be a It says, when there's nobody else doing something, you should be the person there. And there's nobody doing it. So I decided to roll my sleeves up and do it. So the center promotes the treatment and prevention of addiction. You know, we do policy, research, training, we have two clinics, you know, public clinics, and we have a very large prevention program in Israeli schools. We're actually building a center in Jerusalem now, in Mount Scopus. We have two centers, one in Atania and one just outside Tel Aviv. Um, and that's a natural what we do. We treat all addictions, by the way. We don't differentiate between types of addiction. You know, there is a, an underlying common denominator. You know, the, the foundation of addiction is the same. The subject of the addiction very much depends on you know, the age of exposure, 
under the circumstances. And I'm happy to answer more questions, just because addiction is unfortunately becoming kind of the modern day tsunami. I don't know that I learned one thing from you. Um, you know, my relationship was, it was quite unique because it was, it was the first big rock that I had an exposure to, but we acted for many, many years as my grandfather, you know, not as a rock. You know, I studied his house every day at Shabbos, and then we moved to the States every few months, he would come and stay with us for a few days. You know, my, my kids grew up on his lap. Um, I can tell you something very interesting. So when I was in Mapan Shlomo, I got a job offer from Blackstone. Uh, it was six months into my stint at Mapan Shlomo. And I remember I, there was a ship of Mapan Shlomo, Rabbi Gershon called, and I said to Rabbi, I got a job offer that you just can't give up. I mean, it's a job offer you have to seize. Um, and he answered whatever he answered, um, but then I went to a mission. And he told me something fascinating. He said to me that you know, in order to establish citizenship, to get a citizenship you know, in anything, you have to first establish residency. And then he looked at me and he said, you're still a tourist to this world. So turn down this offer, and something better will come in the future. And it was a very, very profound, by the way, it happened to be true. I don't know, but it's always true. It happened to be true. Um, I can tell you many stories about the measure, but really what always struck me is it was very rare to see such a working person. You know, aside from his knowledge in Torah, you know, it was just, I'm not even sure I ever really appreciated the depth that he had in Torah, you know, across the entire spectrum. You know, there's a Tsunigla Tunista and everything, and you just threw it at him and he, and he was just he was so well dressed. But his middles were just, it was very beautiful. You know, he's loved the people, he's careful people, his ability to sit with a human being and make them feel like they're in his entire world. You know, I took him to the Bodleian Library once. Uh, the Bodleian Library, the Bodleian Library is the Oxford Library, it's one of five copyright libraries in the world, but it also has one of the largest collections in the world of the old Jewish manuscripts. So they hold, for example, a fifth century handwritten shots. Not complete, but you know, it's handwritten. They hold many of the original Rambans, you know, handwritten Rambans. And uh, you, you can't visit the Bodleian unless you're a student or alumni or post faculty. So I called the curator of the Bodleian and asked him whether I could bring a special guest. And uh, I happened to know him, so he said I could. And we got a 45 minute slot. This curator happened to speak 13 languages, one of them was Yiddish. So he started conversing with Ramosha and he just fell in love with him. I ended up spending almost four hours at the Bodleian Library. Um, and, and I'll tell you an incredible story. You know, he, he was holding the Rambam, and the hand with the Rambam, yes, and he was quiet. You understand? He, he belonged to a world that, you know, it's almost a link to a world that we can't even fathom, at least I can't even fathom. You know, he opened the door for me to a world of Emmas that I haven't seen by anybody. By anybody. But, uh, after we left the Bodleian, so in front of the Bodleian is the most famous pub in England. It's called the King's Arms. So the King's Arms had over 100 prime ministers where there were students drinking. 
So I said to her, Moshe, do you want to go and see what an English pub is? Okay. So you have to understand where he was 10 minutes before that and then where I was. <laughs> uh, so, but just listen to how sensitive he was. You know, he held my arm and he says, Ariel, after what we've just seen, what is there left to see? So it was an, uh, I was very blessed and I was lucky to be exposed to a world that uh, I'm not sure exists anymore. The Californian, please. What's your name? Jonathan. Yeah, um, you obviously have had a very, uh, you're a busy man with busy, multiple busy careers. How have you been able to make time to spend time with your family and prioritize your family life as well? Um, you know, any change in your life, I very much believe, is a mindset, right? And uh, I think it starts with a mindset, and then it continues with a commitment. You know, I got married when I was 31 years old, um, and marriage is very important to me, and I made a commitment that family comes first, you know, whatever it is, and that's that's what I do. So even in my busy one day, and it is busy, you know, because between running the center and, you know, and promoting public policy and having patients and doing research and learning, of course, and governing. Um, so um, home in the morning, I take my kids to school, um, and I come home every day at 5.30, and I'm moving until 8 o'clock, and I'm nowhere near my, my phone, and then I go back to whatever I need to do. And my wife is very supportive, but that comes first. And it's a commitment. I'm not saying it's easy. You also have to remember that I'm not so much an employee anymore. So, it's, I mean, I can't come back home at 5.30. Would I be able to go to investment banking and still be a present father? Probably not. So, you know, career choice will depend on what type of father and husband you want to be. I wouldn't recommend investment banking. <laughs> So I'll tell you what I am noticing with a younger generation, because most of you are still young. You know, so a friend of mine asked me to help his son you know, get a job, so I, I helped him get a job at Google. And then I didn't see his son for about eight months, and then I, I, his son came to see me, and I'm like, how is the job going? He goes, oh, I quit. And he got a very good job at, at Google in product design. And I said to him, why did you quit? And he said, I feel like it wasn't making any difference. And I said to him, I'm a guy, but it's your first job, and you're only there for eight months. What kind of difference are you trying to make? And I find that this generation, which means your generation, and I'm sorry to say this, everybody wants to get to the top of the mountain, but nobody wants to climb it. Nobody wants to climb it. So what I would like to say is that whatever career it is that you're entering, is that you know, there is something, there's a phase of serving time. You know, you have to work hard. You know, and you probably have to work years and years to work hard in order to get anywhere. You know, very few people get, you know, to have an exit after two years of opening a startup is the, you know, the fourth standard deviation event. It's actually even less than fourth standard deviation event. It doesn't happen. It happens to very, very few individuals, and that's a bracha from Shemaim that probably, you know, happened in whatever way you do. So working hard, I think, is one advice. You know, the Chobaz Alevavos, I think, has a wonderful recipe for it. You know, he speaks about drawing three circles that a person has to do. And 
you know, one of them is, is to really think to yourself what it is that you're good at. You know, and the vast majority of, our, you know, of us really lie to ourselves in what we think we're good at because we hear the voices of what it is that we want to be good at or what we watch the Netflix that is good for us and that we're good at. Um, so you have to go through a whole, a whole process of, of kind of authenticity. What, what is it that you're good at? And I think the second circle is what it is that you like doing. And not what it is that your parents like you to do and your friends or, again, you're doing it because you want to make more money. And then the third cycle is how you can kind of service the community. And Chobos Alevados in, in the Sun language says that your choice of life should all be about the intersection point of those three circles. Now I know many people have gone through that exercise and it actually helped them tremendously. But whatever it is, I think you should try to utilize you know, the things that you're good at, what it is that you like doing, and how it is that you can also serve the people around you. It's very hard to spend a life in a career that you really don't enjoy what it is that you're doing. It's not impossible. But I think it's very hard. You want to ask a question before? Hey, uh, uh, why did you decide to raise your children in Israel? And being yourself from an academic background, how did you understand? How did you manage to incorporate the rather less academic uh, studies that your children probably? Right. So first, my wife decided. <laughs> um, no, no, but today I very much support the decision. My wife is the one who decided we're going to be raising our kids in, in Israel, and uh, I supported it, of course, and it wouldn't have happened otherwise. But uh, my wife really felt that America poses grave challenges to raising kids today. And us, as Bali children, when we're not clay coach, I'm not saying that it's, you know, it's people do it, it's not like people don't do it. But because we have the choice and we have the option of doing it, um, she really wanted to create a home where the center of the house is Torah. And she also wanted to make sure that the whole community that we live in, and our community is in the US, I'm not putting it down or in the UK, wherever it is, she just figured that it would probably be easier to do it in Israel. You know, contrary to what you hear about how difficult it is to raise kids here, it's been incredible, Bokhashan. Now, you're asking a different question. You're asking, as of the view, with a postdoc, one of the best schools in the world, is raising his kids in an education system that doesn't have any secular education. Okay, so I'm inviting you to come for Shabbos once and meet my kids. Um, first, I want to tell you that the analytical training that Mara does to little kids is better than any other system I've encountered. There, there's nothing like it. You know, my, the, my son's ability to take a problem and analyze it from every single point of view is way, way ahead than I had in his age. Way, way ahead. You know, it's really incredible. I mean, he thinks about things. And he thinks about it from different points of view and he dissects it and then he thinks about it again. Okay? Um, so that's one. Two, you know, it may be even more important, the love that my kids have for Yiddish I wouldn't, I don't know how we would have been able to do it also. It's just love. My, my kids' life involved around her. And Hashem is a present. It's not just something you remember on Shabbos. Hashem is present in their lives. All the time. Um, and when I look at it, I have tears in my eyes. What can I tell you? I mean, that's, that's the type of family you wanted to raise. I'm not saying it's devoid of problem. And I'll also be very frank with you. Very frank with you. Um, I'm 
I'm not sure it would have been as easy if we didn't have the financial needs to do it. Okay, so we also have that, and that definitely probably alleviates some of the pressure that we feel. Um, but the wife would have done it regardless. Okay, that's uh, that. Um, English we speak at home. You know, from my kids reading English, we speak in English. Uh, I happen to love maths. I do maths with my kids, and everything else you can pick up just from reading books. I mean, maths and English are the only languages that we learn in school. Everything else is just information. No, 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 no really. If you think about this, maths is also a language, right? It's a language that's very hard to pick up later. All other subjects that you learn in school is information. Information you don't need to go to school for. And I have arrived from it from the secular world that many people who do this at home without going to a formal school system. Right? And the last thing that I just want to always add to you is that most people who want to change the world, even in the modern era, didn't go to school. Okay, or dropped out. Uh, you know, dropped out of school. That's the vast majority of people who want to change the world. So I don't see any kind of linear correlation between school education and then going out and doing something very profound in the world. I mean, they didn't drop, drop out of high school, though. Some did. Some also dropped out of high school. I mean, many dropped out of high school. Or failed high school. But let's continue this. Why, why do you make high school such an important, you know, as opposed to learning in Kaida? Will your children have the ability to go to Universities that you went to? I'm not sure I want my kids to go to universities that I went to. Um, you know, the world today is not the world that I was raised in. You know, I, you know, I, I teach at Yale, I have an appointment at the medical school at Yale, and, you know, would I see them? Would I want my kids to be exposed to it? I mean, I think it's insane. I mean, I think it's like the breakdown of society. You know, it, every society has to have boundaries. Right? Regardless of what type of society you're in. Right? If the social structure can't exist without boundaries, and what you're seeing today in the Western world is the breakdown of that structure. Now, what's going to come out of as a result? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But it's, a, it's an unprecedented time in, in human history today. So do I want my kids to be exposed to it? No. And, you know, I've seen most education systems in the world. Most. I've been exposed to them in some capacity. Um, and I just want to tell you that nothing compares to the Haredi education system in Israel. Where are you from? Berlin. Berlin, okay. Oh, so Berlin, that's a, a modern storm, is Berlin. I didn't grow up in that. Okay, <laughs> but I'm saying, that's, you, know, you can argue that that's modern storm is what, what happens there today. Uh, you know, and I'll give you an example. When I went to Columbia for the first time, I, I, I was shocked to hear that students call professors by their first name. And that's so indicative of culture. You know, what happens in my son's chamber is when the rebel walks in, everybody stands up. Now, okay, that's not how you define whether an education system is good or not, but it definitely shows you something about the social structure. It certainly does. But the thing is, you lived a very successful life in more than one domain. Do you think the children will be able to do the same? How did you find success? Both in Torah, um, making a difference in secular society. And no, no. I don't mean secular society. I mean uh, religious society in the secular 
matter. In your your charity, your investments, everything. Why do you need to go to the secular school for that? The Torah, you definitely don't, and to change to change the world, you don't either. You can ask a different question. Maybe to make money, you may need it. I don't know. Uh, that's also hard for us to argue. But but for the for the way in which you define success, you don't need to go to school. So we can maybe revisit how you define success. Yeah. Well, how do you to me, success. Yeah. To me, success would be much more about raising kids who have integrity, okay, and live a life of morality. Or in a life of honesty, okay, in a life that revolves around Torah. Okay, that's essentially how I would define the children's success. If we're able to do that, then I think we we won the lottery. Nice. Thank you, Thank you. So I think you're asking a very good question in general. So uh, is it a momentous task for one person? Yes, but I'm not the only person doing it. I started an organization that, you know, um, many of my friends joined, you know, to support us. Uh, There's a whole group of people, you know, the former chief justice, the former attorney general, you know, leading CEOs. You know, so we have a very good group of people. Now, in every charity, and I think that's, I think if you're ever going to be involved in some form of a charity, as in the business, KPIs are very important. How do you measure success? I think it's very important to define success. Because you have to measure some form of outcomes. You know, so we have very clear outcomes. For example, you know, our ultimate goal was to effect a national change, a reform in the Israeli legislation. Okay, that basically forces the Israeli government to start trading addiction and also to appropriate budgets. We gave that a 10-year goal and we managed to reach it in four and a half. Okay? And in every one of our kind of different domains, we have very clear goals as to what we're trying to achieve. Um, and we can measure that against our performance. Okay? Does that answer at least somewhat? Yeah, I guess I also, it does. You're asking two different things. Okay, how do you ever stop? Because it's a type, the type of work that never stops. Or, and, or how do you deal with the human tragedy that I encounter every day? What are you asking? Um, I think people who really want to go and change the world never stop. Never stop. I think the challenge is when you go home to be with your wife and children, at least you're able to switch off a little bit. Just so that you can be available and attentive. Okay, that's, you know, I find the learning and I find that Trila is, is remarkably efficient in helping me do that. Um, I also, I, I'll just 
I started meditating when I was very young, and I still do it to this day, and I find it very happy. Okay. Uh, by the way, you're more than welcome to join us for Shabbos, whenever you want. You know, I've seen it's a shame it wasn't last week, because I would ask the court if they would post the owner. Yeah. <laughs> Pleasure meeting you. Thank you, thank you.